Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Venezuela is sinking as the world watches. The Bolivarian Republic, founded two decades ago by the late Hugo Chavez, is hemorrhaging people, rights, respect. Even Venezuela's Saudi-class oil assets are not the treasure they used to be. None of the misery comes a moment too soon for the furious opposition at home to Chavez's elected successor for the last six years, Nicolas Maduro. And none of the hardship is a mite too severe for people, in Washington especially, who all along hated the swaggering oil populism of Chavismo, an extension of Castroismo, the virus of a pink tide of socialism seen to threaten North American hegemony in the hemisphere. President Trump, in his State of the Union, rhetorically deposed President Maduro, recognizing instead the 35-year-old chief of the National Assembly, Juan Guaido. Two weeks ago, the United States officially recognized the legitimate government of Venezuela and its new president, Juan Guaido. We stand with the Venezuelan people in their noble quest for freedom, and we condemn the brutality of the Maduro regime, whose socialist policies have turned that nation from being the wealthiest in South America into a state of abject poverty and despair. Here in the United States, we are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free, and we will stay free. That's the Trump version. Alejandro Velasco is our keynote guide to the layers of this story, imperial, historical, cultural. Venezuela, in Mr. Trump's talk, marks the thematic opening of the 2020 presidential campaign in the U.S. China is the new Russia in our global politics, but Mexico, Europe, and Russia are, politi- are, are serious players, too, in the drama around Venezuela. Alejandro Velasco, welcome. You grew up middle class in Caracas in time to watch the rise of Chavez politics 20 years ago on the faces of your neighbors. You went to Boston College, then Duke for your Ph.D., Your big book so far is Barrio Rising, an account of one Caracas neighborhood in these times. And you teach at New York University, as well as co-editing the Venezuela Review. This looks more and more like a very big deal, Alejandro. Where do you begin telling it? (laughs) Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Um, especially at this moment, which is so uncertain. Um, As you mentioned, I'm from Venezuela 
Um, I'm a little bit older than um, than that. I, I grew up in the 1980s in Venezuela, which was a period of um, after having you know r- ridden the the tales of a, of an oil boom in the 1970s. Um, the 1980s were a period of crisis. Um, you know, expanding poverty and expanding uh, inequality, which um, eventually came to be marked by the massacre of hundreds of people when they rose up against neoliberal policies in 1989 in what was known as the Caracaso. Um, and then that gave rise to, you know, several years of significant uh, political and economic turmoil. And that was basically my coming of age um, mm. in a Venezuela that was immensely you know not only chaotic but was uh was really seen had been seen as the 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 one stable country in latin america by partners like the united states as one of its chief allies in the region so so Um, what is it that's coming to a head right now it begins to feel like the the last war with fidel castro yeah absolutely i mean uh one of the interesting things is that uh Venezuela um, uh, has its uh, has a revolution in 1958 that overthrows a, a military dictatorship in, in January of 1958, actually January 23rd, and then of course a year later in January of 1959, uh, Fidel Castro um, you know, rolls into Havana, and for a while it was really unclear which of these two countries was going to, in the context of the Cold War, take up the banner of uh, you know capitalism and democracy on one hand or socialism on the other, um, and eventually it was Venezuela that was held up by the United States and Castro, of course, mm. as we know, was held up as, as the, the antagonist. Um, and, uh, you know, to the extent that when Hugo Chavez is elected president in, in, in 1998 as Venezuela's 40-year two-party democracy again upheld by the United States was really crumbling, um, he began to turn to Cuba as the example of a country that had not fallen sway to the United States in its bid to um, exert hegemony over the the hemisphere. Um, And so, yeah, to a large extent, um, you know, especially with figures like John Bolton having such a tremendously important role in regime change right now in Venezuela, um, you know, Cuba really is the the larger prize um, in this uh, larger continental battle. Go back to those moments when Hugo Chavez, I'm thinking the UN, where he followed George W. Bush to the rostrum, and he he gloried in his anti-American boldness. He, he could still smell the devil after, after George Bush walked away from the mic uh, and said it. I mean, it was, he, what happened? When did he slip? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to think about. That was in 2006, um, uh, you know, when he talked about smelling the sulfur um, left behind by, by, by Bush. Um, you know, it wasn't immediately clear after the election of Hugo Chavez that Venezuela would, in fact, become the chief antagonist of the United States in the region. Again, like I mentioned, it had actually been quite the opposite in the 40 years prior. Um, it began to shift, actually, in 2001. Hugo Chavez was one of the first people in the entire world to condemn the bombing campaign against Afghanistan in the wake of 9-11. Hmm. And that had begun, and he did so very publicly, showed images of um, dead Afghani children, um, you know, killed with uh, U.S. bombs. And so that had begun already a process where it was unclear whether this, um, you know, this this upstart new president who had uh, you know, promised to, um, to do away with neoliberalism in Venezuela would actually 
simply follow through. Um, that, of course, then uh, began a, a deeper campaign of trying to oust Chavez, which um, was epitomized in 2002 um, in a U.S.-supported coup, um, which then Chavez successfully was able to countermand in what was uh, an unheard of thing in Latin American history, that there had been a U.S.-sponsored coup that then was overturned. Um, and that really created sort of not only the, 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 the myth of Chavez, um, but also spearheaded what, as you mentioned in your opening, was a new um, era of uh, left-wing government who would stand up to the mm. United States um, uh, in the region. Alejandro, measure the real distress in Venezuela today. I mean, on the verge of chaos or something. But in, for instance. Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, I just I was just in Venezuela in in um, in earlier January, between um, January 10th and January 22nd. And, you know, what you see in the streets that is immediately palpable are two things. Number one, the absence of people, especially in Caracas. Um, you hear about the exodus of millions of people in the context of was at one time a tremendous, um, you know, wealth of oil boom in the mid 2000s, and then a precipitous decline over the last four or five years. You hear about the exodus of millions of people, but another thing is to see streets that are in fact quite empty in what was a you know, mm -hmm. traffic-ridden capital at night. Um, at you know, at eight o'clock at night when night um, falls, uh, you see just a few lights uh, in each apartment building, not because there's any kind of blackouts, just because those buildings are empty. Um, so that's significantly palpable. The other thing that's immediately clear when you enter Venezuela now is that even though there aren't the kinds of shortages of food and to some extent medicine that you had seen especially pronounced in 2017, there's now effective shortages, meaning that mm. because hyperinflation has made everything so expensive, unless you have access to dollars, and sometimes even if you have access to dollars, you can't actually buy anything that is on the shelves. So there's kind of a double um, uh, you know, sort of uh, you know, paradox where now there's products available, but you actually can't buy them, which just creates a tremendous amount of uh, additional layer of stress. Donald Trump seems to be ready for the kill. Um, he also seems to be workshopping his 2020 campaign. What's he workshopping in the way of foreign policy, do you think? Well, I think Donald Trump actually couldn't care less either about Venezuela or to a larger extent Latin America. He's canceled two trips to the region. I think that this is a much different play by a set of neoconservatives and basically you know, cold warriors, people like Marco Rubio, people like John Bolton, people like um, Elliot Abrams, who have seen with alarm and in fact horror over the past 20 years the loss of Latin America as, as um, uh, then Secretary Secretary of State John Kerry said in 2013, our backyard. Meaning, Basically, meaning what? Meaning that this is an area of the world that we have a natural um, hegemony and control over, that this is our region to dictate an agenda um, in terms of economics, in terms of politics, and we've done it certainly over the last 100 years, beginning, you know, going back to 1898 in the Spanish-American War. Um, and so this this idea that there was a whole series of countries that were bucking the trend, who were actually standing up to some of the austerity and free trade 
uh, and privatization policies of the 1980s and 1990s propelled by the United States and the IMF and the World Bank was uh, not only a uh, slap in the face to the United States, but it really weakened in their mind the idea that the United States could exert a significant role in the world. So in order to reclaim that um, sense of power in the world, you need to begin by re-yard. Is there no Democratic Party alternative or spokesman for something else, do you think? In Venezuela? Yeah, yeah, toward toward Venezuela. Oh, in the United States. I mean, it's partly the issue is that there's consensus, there's foreign policy consensus among uh, Republicans and Democrats. John Kerry was, in fact, you know, a Democratic appointed uh, Secretary of State. And so that he uttered these words revealed the extent of um, consensus of foreign policy towards Latin America. Alejandro Velasco, stand by. Coming up on Open Source, what killed Chavismo? Drafts of an epitaph. This is Open Source. The global economist Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia University has been troubleshooting in Latin America since Bolivia's hyperinflation in the mid-1980s. He noted when we caught him by phone in a hallway at the United Nations this week that inflation in Venezuela today is running at 1 million percent, the definition of a country in collapse. Crises are never the same, Professor Sachs said, but the underlying realities never change. All of the Americas are conquest societies. Of course, the Europeans arrived and they conquered the indigenous populations. They brought new diseases, they brought African slaves, and the Europeans set themselves up as the dominant parts of the societies of the United States, what became the United States through all of the countries of Central and South America. This led to societies of incredible division of wealth and power divided by race, divided by uh, ethnicity. And this has meant high conflict societies, including, of course, the United States itself, but also the countries throughout the Americas. And in some sense, uh, I think that this very high inequality is at the crux of the region's profound difficulties for centuries. Certain parts of the population have control, other parts seek control. There are cycles of power, the ability of leaders who are the champions of the poor to arise and create mass movements is very real. And when we turn to Venezuela now, of course, the starting point of this cycle is the coming to power of Hugo Chavez and uh, his revolution for the masses of Venezuela. In the crisis of Venezuela, Jeff Sachs rates U.S. military intervention as the worst idea out there. He didn't much like the alternative notion coming from Europe of a quick election to pick a new government. The belief that one can make a quick flip of politics is an American self taught, deeply felt myth. We believed it in Vietnam. We believed it in Afghanistan. We believed it in Iraq. We believed it in Libya. We believed it in Syria. And now we believe it again in Venezuela. Some people believed it in the bad pigs. Of course. We tried it uh, already in 
1961, and that was a very bad idea as well. Nearly got the whole planet blown up. So the fact is that situation is desperate. Mm. I was just confronted here at the UN as we speak, and a very nice uh, young man came up to me, Venezuelan, rather hurt by my observations. Don't I understand how bad the situation is? I assured him I understand how bad the situation is. Don't I understand how horrible uh, the regime is? I assured him that was not Mm. the point. What I tried to explain to him, I think completely unsuccessfully as usual, was how incompetent the U.S. government is in actually getting its dream path and how frequently the U.S. actions, because they are not grounded in systematic and lawful international frameworks, how wrong they go again and again. With the knowledge of how many of these interventions have gone bad and how, how awkwardly we feel about Yankee imperialism in our own hemisphere, what would we have to clear away to build something different? Things are different. Uh, nothing really repeats itself, of course. And this time, for example, Mexico which is a substantial country with a uh, new uh, and forceful president, has at least so far said, no, this is not the approach. We want to see negotiation in Venezuela. We do not want to see a winner-take-all, one side claiming that it has uh, all the authority. Uh, We see the Pope today, the first Pope of the Americas, of course, in history, uh, saying that he is available for mediation. These are new phenomena, and it means that maybe the path will not be simply a repeat of the past. Of course, we have now a different geopolitics. Russia's engagement in the region That goes back to Cuba in uh, 1959-60, and our brazenness about that, as you pointed out with the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion. But China's role is also something new for our hemisphere. I'm still hoping, Chris, that somehow enough forces that say, stop before disaster. Let's find a way to make a negotiated transition. Let's do something peaceful for a change. Let's not have a dictated solution from the outside for a change is still within reach. It's a close call, but it's still within reach. But every day you see the choreography of this Trump musing that everything's on the table, including military intervention, rather shocking and disgusting. But power for the course. What you do is you try to stabilize the situation from its desperate condition. You end the hyperinflation. You help to get people eating again. You help to get the economy to stop an absolute, utter collapse. Jeffrey Sachs is university professor at Columbia, and he runs the Sustainable Development Network at the United Nations. Alejandro Velasco, what would you do to prevent what he's calling a total social collapse? Well, I completely agree. Insofar as uh, as we have seen, not just in in Latin America, but in other parts of the world. You agree you'd deal with Maduro 
in some fashion? No, no, no. I, I agree with uh, with Jeffrey Sachs in terms of uh, the idea that uh, things can get worse, as bad as things are, and mm. as urgent and dire as the situation is. Um, things can always go worse. And the examples that he points to, not only in Latin America, but elsewhere in the world, is that when the U.S. gets involved in terms of dictating um, the futures and fortunes of nations, that is usually the recipe for things going worse. What would I do differently? Um, certainly, there are uh, hopeful calls by some quarters. Mexico would be one. Um, certain countries of Europe, even though they have recognized Juan Guaido as president, understand the perils of a transition that would lead to even more instability in the medium term if it's uh, carried out in a way that doesn't account for the fact that people who otherwise may be very resistant and against Maduro today, especially those who once supported Hugo Chavez, don't yet fully trust the opposition. Um, and as a result, what we need to be thinking about is not just regime change, but the manner in which things change, because those will dictate what will happen again in the medium term and in the long term in Venezuela, which can again also get worse. What does it say, Alejandro, that China has a $50 billion bet or, and debt in, in, uh, in credit, rather, in, in Venezuela? Well, I mean, it certainly says that, uh, for one, it's deeply invested in, in not just what happens in Venezuela, but really in what happens in Latin America. And I think this is partly you know, to your earlier question, what, you know, what are the larger stakes at play? Yes. It's it's not just about, um, for instance, as some have said, it's not just about, you know, U.S. taking control over Venezuelan oil fields. You know, the U.S. has had a long presence in Venezuelan oil. It's a much bigger play, right? Countries like Brazil, countries like Argentina, countries like Peru, countries like Chile – as they have turned right, um, elect conservative governments, they have gestured and signaled very openly that they will open their reserves, their natural reserves, the Amazon, soy fields, mining, um, you know, timber in Chile uh, to U.S. companies or Canadian companies. And China has, over the past um, you know, decade, made significant investments in, um, in Latin America precisely on the basis of uh, exporting some of these or importing some of these commodities. Um, and so that's what you know, China's stake is. It's not just Venezuela. It's what it will mean if the United States, in particular is able to reassert control over the agenda and therefore basically force the uh, force China to take a back seat not mm. necessarily lose all of its investments but lose the, the the privileged position that it is at over the last 10 years Alejandro Velasco the Latin history stars at NYU are shining bright on open source tonight I asked your colleague Greg Grandin to consider this eclipse of chavismo taking account of the best and the worst in it over 20 years. At its best, Chavismo distributed an enormous amount of oil revenue to people on the margins of society. Venezuela is a potentially enormously rich country, and Hugo Chavez was elected in 1998 in the midst of a profound economic and political crisis. The whole political establishment had collapsed under the weight of economic austerity and corruption, and Chavez was elected as an outsider. And and, um, and he started out as a fairly mild reformer that, uh, that promised to try to use the country's oil wealth to benefit the majority of the population. And he immediately hit a profound and deep backlash among the country's well-off. 
And, you know, he was elected in 98 with a supermajority, but it really wasn't until he went through these pitched conflicts, a 2002 coup blessed by the United States, which failed, an oil strike, the country's business class, a kind of employer strike, recall referendum, that he managed to get control of the country's oil industry. At the height of his popularity, he not only distributed an enormous amount of wealth, but he brought people into the political system that had been excluded. He recognized people who were at the margins of history and society. Now, at its worst, Chavez had an enormous amount of electoral and rhetorical legitimacy and power. And he also had access to sky-high and rising oil revenues. The price of barrels of oil were increasing, and that was a blessing and a curse. It's easy to say that it was just a kind of petropopulism. Really what that oil revenue did, along with his rhetorical and electoral legitimacy, was that he never really had to resolve contradictions. For a while, it all worked. It's also an easy critique, and it's a true critique that Chavez benefited from high oil prices, but that misses the larger point and legacy of Chavez. Chavez is responsible for those high oil prices. His diplomatic team had a vision of restoring OPEC, restoring a kind of 1970s vision of using petroleum as a tax on the first world in order to create a more socially just international order. And so he was responsible in some ways for restoring the power of this vision of, of a kind of new international economic order that would use petroleum as a lever in which the underdeveloped or developing countries might confront the first world. Jump forward to his death and the election of Nicolas Maduro, oil prices, almost as if they were released from some kind of obligation, collapsed pretty much right at the moment of Chavez's death, I mean, coincidentally. So Nicolas Maduro, his successor, who won a very close election the first time he was elected to president, didn't have the political skill, but more importantly, he didn't have the oil revenue to act as that kind of a broker that Chavez did. Greg Grandin, the legacy is still to be defined. Will it be said long-term that Chavismo corrupted itself and died, or that it got weighted out and then killed by the money power? That's the moral debate, right? That's the interpretation. So when the right in this country, when conservatives point to Venezuela and say, you want to see what socialism is? That's socialism as a way of beating back the social democratic ascendant wing of the Democratic Party, the Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez wing of the Democratic Party. What they're saying basically is that inherent in the idea of redistribution is tyranny, crisis, and chaos. Another way of looking at it is that efforts to bring about a more just world will provoke opposition from those who don't, it's not in their interest to see a more just world, and it's in that conflict that is the chaos, crisis, and catastrophe. Greg Grandin will have a literary footnote on Venezuela before this hour is done. Besides social history in Latin America, Greg Grandin has a is well known for a critical study of Henry Kissinger's shadow on U.S. foreign policy. His book, forthcoming, is titled The End of the Myth from the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. 
back to you, Alejandro Velasco. Did the Caracas barrios that you write about lose confidence in Chavismo? They didn't lose confidence in Chavismo. I think what they see is a difference between Chavez and Maduro, right? And the other thing to keep in mind is that Chavismo, in part, as Greg was mentioning, did two things. Number one, it upheld the promise that the riches of oil should be distributed widely rather than held uh, closely among just a few elites in, in the country. That's a radical the, leap and a brave one, it seems to me, in hindsight. Well, not, not certainly brave, but of course, one, as Greg also mentioned, that elicited tremendous backlash. Um, and that created the second major um, uh, legacy of, of Chavez, in particular, among uh, barrio populations and popular sector populations in Venezuela, which was precisely to uh, reclaim a sense that they, too, belonged as part of the national project and that they had claim to the country's future just as much as anyone else, right? And so for the for, you know, first few years of his um, his presidency, what Chavez really held up was the idea of what we called uh, participatory and protagonistic democracy, where people, especially among popular sectors organized, mm. could in fact um, you know, make demands upon the state and also therefore make demands upon the kind of Venezuela and the kind of democracy that they wanted to see ha ha happen and play out. Um, so this is the, you know, when they think about Chavez, they think about those two things, mm. both the redistribution of wealth, as well as the, the confidence to be able to actually lead their, um, lead their futures and lead their nation. What Maduro has done, um, in part because the lack of access to these revenues, is also because of a lack of, of, a ta of, of sort of connection to these popular sectors, um, and, and also because um, you know the opposition um, has really been very you know, uh, you know dynamic and vibrant um, uh, against Maduro in ways that they weren't um, in the latter years of the Chavez uh, presidency. Maduro has always been basically on the defensive. Mm -hmm. And some of the programs, not only the social programs, but some of the initiatives to try to propel um, you know, social movement organizing among these barrio dwellers have basically been put on hold for the entire mm -hmm. presidency of Maduro. You know, listening to Greg Grant and I, I just remembered, we wondered as kids, could there be a Switzerland without the mountains? And can there be a Venezuela without oil? I mean, without a booming, rising desperately needed oil supply. <laughs> well, not in the 20th, certainly 20th century. And in, in the, the, I guess the jury's still out of as to whether it can be in the 21st century. <laughs> That's the question. Yeah. I mean, I think so. The issue is, um, one of the things that oil does is, yes, it provides in these moments of tremendous boom the possibility to um, to distribute revenues widely and to, to invest widely. Um, and then, of course, you're, you're left with a bag of what happens when oil prices collapse. But one of the other things that oil does, and um, the brilliant um, Venezuelan, late Venezuelan anthropologist Fernando Coronil in a book called The Magical State really outlined as well, is it creates the idea, the illusion of limitless wealth, yes. right? And it also therefore creates a collective amnesia that erases the memory of past failures, right? And so the challenge for Venezuela has always been to actually embrace the history of both successes and mm. failures and chart a different path going forward. Yeah, it's surely going to stand as the modern instance of the, the poison in all that power and money and glory 
of oil. Alejandro Velasco, stand by. Coming up, the cultural stakes in Venezuela's crisis. This is Open Source. Venezuela, in the hands of the Trump phrasemakers, is just part of an ideological problem and fully the match for George Bush's axis of evil. Here was John Bolton, the national security chief in the White House, speaking in Florida late last year. Under this administration, we will no longer appease dictators and despots near our shores. We will not reward firing squads torturers and murderers. We will champion the independence and liberty of our neighbors. The troika of tyranny in this hemisphere, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, has finally met its match. The jazz pianist Leo Blanco is a Venezuelan cultural star who performs and teaches in the U.S. and is still obsessively engaged in affairs back home. Short form, Leo Blanco, welcome. Do you have a remedy in this crisis? Thank you, Chris. First of all, thank you for doing this program. A lot of people are starting to hear more about Venezuela. Well, listen, remedy for Venezuela. Um, I don't want Marines to step in my country. And for that to be avoided is very easy. It's just one guy, one person has to step aside. Trump doesn't need to talk bad about socialism. Unfortunately for socialists, and this is my opinion, I was grown up in my house with socialist ideas, I have to say, but um, nowadays, the worst propaganda socialist has is the history of Venezuela in the last 20 years. Yes, Chavez was uh, an important figure. He did a lot of uh, beneficial th- policies for Venezuela. Uh, but I, I strongly disagree with some of the statements of, of the other guests, uh, res- respectfully disagree. The richest of oil, it doesn't matter much if it's distributed to the people of Venezuela. What it matters and what the Chavez had the opportunity to, to do and didn't do is to um, make an economy a diverse economy, not dependent of oil. You see, we are a country that depends of oil, only oil. We are a country of the pens of one man, of Chavez, or Bolivar before Chavez. And until we don't realize that we have to be a diverse economy, a diverse democratic institution, we're always going to be dependent of one figure. Let's diversify the conversation with music. Music should have something like parity with oil, seems to be, among Venezuela's exports. The celebrated El Sistema was conceived as a social movement by the late Jose Antonio Abreu, to put a musical instrument in the hand of every child in the world, starting with Venezuela. It has a foothold in Boston, too. And then its most famous graduate, Gustavo Dudamel, was chosen as conductor of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, sealing an enormous triumph. I want to know, does the music keep going? Does El Sistema survive the end of Chavismo? Well, um, unfortunately, the Sistema has been uh, deeply damaged by, by, by all this uh, politics. I mean, uh, I, I cannot tell you with property what the percentage, the exact percentage of the people who has uh, fled the country, the, 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 uh, the young people from El Sistema. 
um, it's difficult to sustain uh, one entire orchestra nowadays in a sistema. And as I say before uh, about Venezuela being a bad example of socialists, I do have to say that uh, the best propaganda in favor of socialists was Abreu. That is the true socialist of Venezuela. Because, yeah, because I want to believe he, that. And he, he preceded Hugo Chavez. He pre- of course. In the he, movement. Yes, yes. Abreu was a very successful um, um, economist of music in in in, in uh, as as, a, as an economist he made music available for all the kids kids were on the street avoiding getting to drugs they gave them clarinets instead of drugs um, and he has a very successful program that every government before Chavez from uh, uh, Acción Democrática or COPEI who were the the two uh, political parties main political parties in Venezuela before Chavez they all supported Abreu. And of course, Chavez, when Chavez gets into power, it was very easy. It, was, it would be a mistake not to support Abreu. Uh, he gave them an uh, open wallet to do whatever he wanted, mm-hmm. and he used the money responsibly in, for the music. You know, I'm remembering you and I started talking about Bolivarismo, Bolivarism, named for Simon Bolivar, the great liberator of great swaths of Latin America uh, in the 19th century. Uh, maybe 15 years ago. And I, I want to hear more about it uh, the, and the fate of the the breadth of the idea of Bolivarism and the, the fate of it going forward. Well, Bolivar, Bolivar was a, an amazing hero in Venezuela. The problem is that because of all he did, he's been taken um, by politicians from the right and the left as a flag of policies that sometimes has nothing to do with, with Bolivar. Um, and I, I think I mentioned uh, one day to you before that the problem is that Bolivar in Venezuela is everything. And and it's not that he wasn't a great uh, hero, but I don't think here in America we talk about only Washington, right? Uh, we Jefferson talk, we, now and then. We, we, now, then, now and then. And we have many different uh, 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 heroes of uh, American democracy. In Venezuela, we only have one, and we talk, is, is the name of the currency, is the name of every plaza in every city and in any village. And that's the problem. We, we always have a paternalistic figure in Venezuela, and we only have one source of income in Venezuela. We need to spread this, and that's why music it's important in Venezuela. But, but I remember you were a bit of a Bolivarist. I mean, it meant something good. It was an inclusive national symbol of what, though? Um, I don't know if I was a Bolivarist. I supported some of the policies of Chavez when he came because it was uh, Venezuela was going under uh, enormous poverty at this time. Nobody can deny that. And I have friends who will say, well, you, you, you're supporting Chavez. No, not at all. But he, he was... Uh, a figure that came in a moment that was needed to make a change. Now, when Chavez started talking as a king, as a owner of a farm instead of a president, that's what I, I had enough of this. Because we all have to understand, we have to understand that a democracy functions by independence of the institutions, not by one guy, even if that one guy says that he knows what's best for you or not. Come back to music. Uh, uh, we were thinking, hearing um, John Bolton speak of the troika of tyranny. I mean, no shame at all. But is it a coincidence that two of the three countries he named, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, have spectacularly great music? I mean, world music. Um, what's the connection there? 
Well, I think it's a diversity of ethnicities, but we have that in different countries in Latin America, I have to say. Um, yes, it's probably a coincidence. I mean, the, the, the talent that comes out from Venezuela and from Cuba is ridiculous. It's, 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 it's amazing. Um, and um, I think the diversity of uh, genres that we have to play, for example, in a country as Venezuela, that we have, you know, Brazil, the colossal of music behind <laughs> yes. us. We have, we have in front of, of the United States, we have all the Caribbean. We are, we are a port uh, geographically, but also musically. If you want to succeed as a musician in Venezuela, you cannot stay in one genre. You have to learn many genres. That's why the people from a, the, the kids from a system are so talented, because those kids rehearse Mahler or Beethoven, and when they go out of the rehearsal, they have a salsa gig or playing jazz or playing rock or playing any different genres, and that's what makes it rich. Diversity makes anything rich, culture, music, and that's why I have also a problem with the wall. <laughs> because because it's stopping diversity. Diversity is, is, is the substance of, of richness. Um, I always have a feeling among Latin American musicians that they're competing with each other, nation, nation by nation in, in North America, especially Cuba and Brazil and Venezuela too, Panama, so many countries, Peru, have extraordinary musicians working in this country. Yes, yes, yes. Including the guy who wrote our theme music, the drummer, uh, Daphnis Prieto. Daphnis Prieto. Right, yes, great drummer, great drummer. We, we, we recorded some, some music together. Yes, um, I don't know if we compete. I mean, well, I, th- I think it's a, it's a healthy competition, um, what, what you mentioned, right? Um, but um, some some many things to to learn about music. Music is also um, is a mirror of the path of civilization, right? Um, in music, we have diversity. In music, we have a com- more common sense. Um, sometimes, uh, when we talk when we talk only about politics, we can get so diverted about left or right. I have to say, dictators are ambidextrous. They come from the left and for the right. We cannot get confused by the political party name of an imposter. An imposter is an imposter and, and period. They're going to come from any, any, any left or right. And- I, I, I want to ask Alejandro Velasco how the, the, the magic of music survives in, in Venezuela. In, in Cuba, it always seemed to me that the music ran much, much deeper than the politics, and, and Castro long outlived him and actually, of course, thrived under him in certain ways. What, what is the future of the spirit of El Sistema, do you think, Alejandro? Well, I mean, I think I, everything that Leo said, is, it's, it's both beautiful and I think correct in terms of the musical legacies and the pathways. I think that the reason and the way that uh, music sustains itself in Venezuela, despite the crisis and sometimes because crisis, is uh, is by experimenting in new forms and ways that uh, you know, connect to um, what's happening in other parts of the world. So, yes, we're approximately uh, close to places like Brazil and Panama and Colombia. But with the Internet, for instance, now, of course, you have kids, you know, logging on and watching YouTube videos of music 
um, from all over the world and combining them with their own sort of styles. There's a, a famous, well, not famous, but it's growing in fame in Caracas Barrios um, type of music, perhaps Leo knows it, called Changatuki, right, which is both a dance and a, a musical mm. style. And it's extremely, you know, uh, dynamic. It's sort of like, you know, house, but um, uh, but also has these you know, tremendous kind of dance moves. And it comes from the Barrios. And one of the interesting things about it is that it's a product of crisis insofar as, you know, came from, uh, basically dance parties that um, you know, were happening in barrios during the daytime because at nighttime barrios are so dangerous that you couldn't have parties anymore yeah. um, at nighttime and so you know they, they would just you know gather during the day and it would become sort of like this this you know this open party open dance party um, and from that emerged this different form you remind me of Eddie Palmieri saying that Cuban music and Latin music has everything to do with hard labor Right. And poverty <laughs> and adversity. Right. I mean, music arises in every culture out from the, the depression, from economic depression, from militarily oppression. And music always find a way to come out. It's like water. You cannot stop water. Music will always find uh, a, a way to go out. Um, Broadway. Broadway started here in the Great Depression, right? <laughs> um, and and um, every time I say in music, and especially in jazz, we're in improvisation, Limitations is the mother of creativity. So, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, from something tragic, uh, talking about Venezuela is, is, is really a, a tragic uh, story that we live in, but I, I'm, I'm looking at it with hope. Um, Speaking of that, what is the hope? I think um, maybe we're getting the attention of the world now looking at Venezuela that the UN has met even in a weekend to talk about Venezuela. Um, and again, I also want to say that it's not only the U.S. who's leading the path of taking Maduro out like they did when, in, in the typical story of the U.S. coming into Latin America. This is also Brazil, Colombia are in, all Latin America except Uruguay and Mexico, uh, Europe is in. So probably has not been for a while a coalition of countries in the same path and, and a coalition of both left and right here in this country in the same path. And especially with a president like Trump, I mean, it's difficult to have that. Mm -hmm. And we have it in Venezuela. So I'm looking, I, I, that makes me have hope and many Venezuelans too. Alejandro Velasco, do you want to strike a hopeful note or, or, or counter it? I mean, I, I do want to strike a helpful note, but not in the same kind of register. We want to keep, keep with the analogy. Yeah, sure. For instance, yeah, you, you have this kind of coalition that's being formed, but in, in the kind of synergy between you know, Democrats and Republicans in the United States. But there's, you know, there's no way that you can, on the one hand, sort of proclaim a, sort of the advent of democracy as, uh, you know, in, in ousting Maduro at, at the same time supporting Honduras, which just went through its own fraudulent election and repression of protests and supporting uh, Guatemala, which has, uh, you know, gutted uh, a UN-mandated uh, anti-corruption body, which is widely seen as an anti-democratic move, or, you know, supporting um, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who's, um, you know, it's sort of the Trump version of um, uh, in, in, in Brazil. And so, yeah, I, I think that it's it's misguided to suggest that this is sort of the advent of a great new era of democratic, um, you know, premier democracy promotion. My hope, actually, is in that, um, exactly as Leo said, that the world's attention really is on Venezuela in a way that it wasn't before. And I think that Maduro needs to be pressured 
um, not necessarily pressured out immediately, mm. but pressured into some sort of negotiation. Um, I don't, you know, in the past they've used negotiation to stall and sustain power. I don't think that's on the table anymore. That's my sense of hope. Alejandro, don't go away. Leo, incidentally, thank you for the music that we've been playing under a lot of this hour. But from music back to books, Greg Grandin gets the last word on the long view of Venezuela. It occurred to both of us in conversation that two of the all-time classic novels are set in that part of the world, Nostromo from 1904 and the pen of the Polish-English Joseph Conrad, and then A Hundred Years of Solitude from the Bolivian Nobel Prize winner Gabriel Garcia Marquez in 1967. Conrad novel is a European novel that takes the conventions of fiction and then infuses the plot with the question of imperialism and resource extraction and neocolonialism. And he was writing that in the wake of the United States' intervention in Colombia that peeled off the province of Panama in order to build a canal. And he recast it around a country in which a region of the country was caught up in the grips of capital, of debt, of finance of extraction and the rising power of an ascendant United States. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, a Colombian novelist, follows up and in the late 1960s, he writes 100 Years of Solitude, published in Spanish in Latin America and Argentina and Havana and other places in Latin America. And in some ways, it's an engagement with Conrad's and Ostromo. He also creates a fictional region, Macondo, modeled after Colombia's Caribbean coast region, that's caught up and subordinated to U.S. capital. In the case of Macondo, it's banana plantations. The novel climaxes with the workers' strike that is suppressed, and the resolution of which is that the fury of North American capitalism summons up uh, an apocalyptic storm that wipes the community off the face of the earth. So, Garcia Marquez and Conrad in Literary Heaven are talking about Venezuela today. What are they saying? What do you think, Joe? Conrad's politics are a little bit more complicated. Garcia Marquez, definitely uh, not happy. I mean, he was a critic of U.S. imperialism. He understood it for what it was. He, in many ways, his literature, his whole his writing style was creating a cultural corollary to what sociologists call dependency theory, dependency theory being an understanding that the prosperity of the first world, the wealth of the first world, is dependent on the underdevelopment of the third world of resource exporting countries, keeping those resources cheap, keeping their markets open. So in many ways, this is but one more epilogue to 100 Mm. Years of Solitude. They're both saying, I told you so. Yes, they're both saying, I told you so. Thank you, Greg Grandin, Leo Blanco, Alejandro Velasco, and Jeffrey Sachs. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, the artist Susan Coyne, and the engineer George Hicks. Mary McGrath is our benevolent dictator. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. <laughs>